I'm going to begin by thanking the uh, Michael Jackson Foundation for lending me his uh, microphone here that we're going to try. I was in Helena a couple weekends ago, and while I was there, Brandon Moore said, these microphones are so much better, and uh, so we'll see uh, what ends up to be the case. I'm going to ask you this morning to just imagine you were a historian. And you're looking at significant movements and significant changes in history. And you notice that in the days that build up to this specific date, there is an increase in the number of sales of things like batteries, flashlights, blankets. All of those sorts of things are selling like crazy. And then as the calendar switches from one day to the next, those sales almost drop instantaneously. Now, if you're a historian, you're going to wonder what happened in that day that caused that switch and that change of people's behaviors. Now, you'd probably understand what exactly was happening if I told you the date was January, December 31st of 1999. And the following day was January 1st of 2000 when the Y2K bug really didn't bite. And there really was no long-term effects and long-term damages. But we all believe that something must account for dramatic and drastic changes in history. We don't believe that people just change just simply because as a group collectively. There's a movie called Going in Style. It's a story of three retired men, Joe, Willie, and Albert, who have for their whole lives, they're now older men, but for their whole lives, they have been law-abiding citizens. They are people who some have families. They have worked for years, decades at the same company. And now, all of a sudden, they decide they are going to rob a bank. And if the movie was just the story of these three guys who have never broken a law robbing a bank, you wouldn't get the story, would you? Until you find out that their pensions had been foreclosed on, that they had, had stopped giving them their pensions, and they thought that it was the banks that were stealing their money. And so now we have a plot that can drive the story. This morning, I want us to explore the infancy of Christianity. And I want us to talk about the dramatic and the drastic changes that happened there in the very early parts of Christianity. Because something must account for the change. Believers and unbelievers alike will affirm one truth. Something happened right after the death of a man named Jesus. But the thing that happened is what there might be disagreement about. What every good investigator knows is that you need to locate the epicenter the very beginning point, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the one event that caused all of the change that was necessary and the movement for people. So what is it in Christianity? Where is that epicenter? Where is the ground zero where the belief in the resurrection come from? I think that we can locate the beginning of the Christian movement with a group of people called disciples who begin to say a message that a man named Jesus rose from the dead. In a sermon some 50 days after the death of Jesus, Peter proclaims in front of a group of at least 3,000 people where he says, 
You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power and wonder and signs that God did through him and among you, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed uh, him by the hand, he was crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law, but God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, if you're a skeptic, I suspect that you're thinking, it's not a surprise that these guys who had been with Jesus for three years are willing to cover for him. I mean, clearly they're a part of the plan and they're a part of the plot. And so there is no irony to the fact that the disciples are at the epicenter of this change in human history. And so we have two questions we need to answer. First of all, was there a dramatic shift in their lives? And then secondly, what would then best account for that change? Are they simply acting in a way that's consistent with how they've always acted as we've encountered them in the Gospels? As a congregation, we've been reading through Mark, where Jesus, we find, has called these 12 people to be his disciples. But in Mark, in the last three chapters, chapters 8 and 9 and 10, it seems that the disciples are completely missing the point about what Jesus is about and about his ministry. And the reason is because they're living out a completely different value system or a completely different story than Jesus. They have their hopes and their values set in something. And so if we were to ask the disciples four simple questions, I think this is how they would answer them. Who are we? We are the Israelites, the people of God. What's wrong? The Romans are oppressing us. What time is it? It is the time for action. I will not restart now. Four hours. That ought to give me lots of time to finish my sermon. (laughs) What time is it? It is the time for action. It is the time to reclaim our rightful land and our rightful rulership of government. And so what is the solution? It is the defeat of Rome. And they've been following Jesus with these four assumptions and answers to these four questions. And so we find that at conflict with Jesus. See, when Jesus begins to talk about in Mark 8, 32, that he will suffer, that he will be killed and rise again, what is it that Peter does? Peter takes him aside, and he begins to rebuke him. After the Mount of Transfiguration, they're coming down, and the disciples, we are told by Mark in Mark 9, 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead could mean. In chapter 9, verse 18, somebody asked the disciples to cast out a demon, but they could not do so. After his second talk about what would happen in Jerusalem, it says of the disciples in 9.32, but they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. In 9.33 through 35, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And in 9, chapter 38 through verse 39, we see Jesus, uh, the disciples trying to stop someone from casting out demons. And Jesus says of them, Do not stop him. And then we find in chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, people are bringing their little children to Jesus, and Jesus uh, is indignant, angry at them for stopping them. 
In chapter 10, verse 24, when Jesus is teaching, the disciples are perplexed by these words. They are later greatly astonished and said to one another, Then who can be saved? And then of the request of James and John in 10, 36-38, He said to them, What is it you want me to do? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. So let me simply ask you, does this sound like a group who knows exactly what's going on? Who is conspiring and willing to die for this message, one that they actually seem to be struggling to understand? It doesn't seem to me like this is a group of men who are primed to die for a message that they do not understand. Mark, as he continues to tell the story, he continues to highlight further their abandonment. Perhaps one of the climactic parts is Mark chapter 14 in verses 50 through 52, where it says, All of them deserted him and fled. And a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth, and they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked." How deeply and desperately people wanted to do whatever they could to get away from Jesus. Because now they're realizing to be associated with Jesus is a dangerous thing. And so when Jesus dies, so too does their hope die. Their dreams of Jesus being one who could do something about their problem. They return to fishing. And their words, I think, shared by the two men on the road to Emmaus could account for them all. We had hoped... He was the one to redeem Israel. And the epicenter of Christianity begins with these men making a proclamation. Jürgen Moltmann says about the teachings of the resurrection, those who without exception had fled from the place where he was crucified, and those whose faith in Jesus has, had been refuted by this harsh fact are the very ones who begin to preach a message of resurrection. They are unlikely candidates. They have no motivation for falsifying a story. But they were changed. In fact, this very Peter, the, the very Peter who is, is hiding as people say, hey, you were with him, weren't you? He says, no, because he's afraid of what? He's afraid of death. And that very same person, 50 days later, gets up in front of a group of at least 3,000 people and says he is risen from the dead. The very same Peter who under Nero will be crucified for this faith. Something changed. Or you have James who, in Mark's gospel, he says, hey, can I have one of these seats of glory? I mean, I want to have one of these, these power positions within the kingdom. That very same James who in Mark chapter 12 is killed because of his faith. What changed? The burden for us as we look at what changed is to account for two things. The first is the fact that the tomb was empty. And the second is that people saw the resurrected Lord. We read earlier, saw a portion out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what Paul writes, beginning in verse 3. For I handed on to you as of first importance that I, what I in turn had received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Here we see Paul saying, there are people all around you who can attest to this. Oh, there are other theories. Some people will say the disciples stole the body. And I just wonder if you've ever read Mark chapter 8, whether that makes any sense. They would steal a body and then die for it. Some say that they went to the wrong tomb. And then when you have all these subsequent arguments about Jesus and his resurrection, I would assume somebody would just produce the body of Jesus and say, here it is, you're wrong. Some will say Jesus was never buried. He was probably just eaten by dogs. That may explain the empty tomb, but it does not explain that these people saw a resurrected Jesus. See, it's long since been my belief that the resurrection of Jesus best explains the dramatic change in their behavior, the fact that the tomb was empty, and the fact that they saw the resurrected Christ. But you see, the resurrection of Jesus is a specific kind of truth with some very specific and significant implications. See, we have different kinds of truth in our world. The first, we have truth without significance and without implications. Did you know that movie popcorn costs more per ounce than filet mignon? That's true. But it is a truth that does not have significance or implications. If you want to eat popcorn, you still will. And if you want to eat filet mignon, you still will. But then there are some truths that are significant and they have specific implications. Gravity is probably one such truth. You, I'm assuming, believe in gravity. And if I asked you to go to stand on the pinnacle of this roof and jump off, you would not. Because your belief in gravity is significant enough that it will dictate the choices you will make in your life. And the resurrection is one such truth. Paul says of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in, faith, in vain, and your faith has been in vain. It is a significant truth with significant implications for us. And the reason it's significant is because a resurrection is a truth that demands trust. It calls you to trust in someone and to trust in something. See, even for Jesus, the cross was a significant call for trust. We found that as Jesus gets to the place of the cross, he plays a passive role, allowing the will of God to dictate the situation and the, the circumstances that he finds himself in. Those who are around the cross, they yelled, he saved others, but he can't save himself. But we know he could have. He had the power and the ability, and yet on the cross he entrusted himself to the will and to the purpose of his Father. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' final words were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. See, the cross is an expression of unparalleled trust in the power and the plans and the purposes of the Father. It was a trust based on a truth that God would protect him 
that God had a plan. And the resurrection, too, is a testimony of the undeniable power and plan and purpose of the Father. We learn through the resurrection that God is able to do what He has promised to do. We learn that if we, too, entrust ourselves to God, He is able to both redeem and to resurrect us. And see, the biblical writings, they affirm that there is a connection to what God did in Christ and what He can and will do in us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Now, we don't use the first fruits concept very much any day, but the first fruits become a guarantee or a promise of what is to come. If you were looking at buying an orchard, for example, somebody would come and bring you a fruit that came from the tree, and that fruit then serves as, as, as proof this tree produces fruit, and more will come. And so what Christ is for us is that first fruit, the proof and the guarantee that there is more resurrection from the dead to come. And it is resurrection for those who follow Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, so through his spirit that dwells in you. The promises that were seen in the resurrection are the promises that have now been offered to those who follow this Christ. So the resurrection is a truth that demands a trust which empowers our transformation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. You probably realize already that we live in a world of competing voices offering competing promises. You will be told this week that if you buy this toothpaste, oh, everyone will adore you and love you. You will be told this week if you drive this car, ah, people will then respect you. You will be told this week if you want to be significant, you need to have a job that pays at least... Turn on your TV for 10 minutes and you will be offered voices and promises... And yet in the midst of all of those promises, there is a God who is making promises that seem almost counterintuitive to every one of those promises. There is a God who through His Son is calling us to live a completely different way. And these two have promises. This Son will say, take up your cross and follow me. This son will say, be last of all and servant of all. This son will say, be the slave of all. This son will say, not my will be done, but your will be done. And I personally think that all these calls would be mere foolishness if it wasn't for the resurrection. To believe in the resurrection is to affirm the great power of God over death. It is to affirm that we are not capable to bring about the new life. It is to affirm that that must be done through Jesus Christ and by His Spirit within us. 
and that the good life is found only in Christ and in our sacrifice for him. See, the resurrection is not just about what God will do when you die, but it's about what God affirms about himself, about his people, and about the world. William Willimon says, The world tells Christians to get real and to face the facts. But we have, after the cross and resurrection, a particular opinion about what is real. He goes on to say, I don't really know the significance of my little life until I view my life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. The resurrection affirms that when we lose, we gain. The resurrection affirms that where there is death, there is life. The resurrection affirms that where one is last, they will be first. The resurrection turns the world upside down. And so through the resurrection, the world is no longer as we assumed it to be. See, we can answer those four questions that the disciples once answered. Who are we? We are the beloved people of God, redeemed, ransomed, and saved by Jesus Christ. What's wrong in the world? Sin is wrong in the world. Rebellion is wrong in the world. What time is it? It is these last days between the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. And what is the solution? The solution in history is Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. And the solution in the future is the resurrected Christ returning once again to set everything straight. The whole world is reoriented because of the resurrection. The resurrection is a truth that demands our trust that leads to our transformation. I want to talk for a moment about fear. Did you know that fear is one of the most frequently commanded things in the Bible? Do not fear. Be strong and courageous. And yet, how many of us, our lives are dictated by fear? You might not fear the boogeyman, but I bet you fear being alone. You may even fear death. You may fear being in an awkward situation. You may fear not having enough money. Fears can dictate so much of our lives. But if we are to live the resurrection, we live the resurrection knowing that the power of God is at work in this world and the power of God is at work in us. And so the resurrection alters how we are called to live in this world, and it transforms us. See, at the end of the very first gospel sermon, after Peter talked about the resurrection of the dead, the people said, what must I do to be saved? There is this instinctive awareness that if Christ is raised, I need to change. And Peter offers these words of hope grounded in the resurrection, grounded in the power of God. They had heard the truth, and they had trusted in the truth, but now are they willing to allow that truth to bring about their transformation? And so Peter says in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. For this promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, for everyone on whom the Lord our God calls to him. So transformation. If the resurrection is real, it will not simply be a truth you affirm. It will be a truth you experience, and it will be a truth you live. And so may God, who produced the first fruits in Jesus Christ, may he bring about those fruits in your life as well. That transformation may begin through this process of giving yourself in the waters of baptism. Or perhaps that's something you have already participated in, and yet you can recognize there are ways I am not yet living out the truth of the resurrection. I still hold fears in so many areas. God is calling for your full and complete transformation through the work He is doing through His Spirit. And so a word of blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And we're getting ready to walk out these doors. And as we walk out these doors, we walk out these doors to live the resurrected life. And so my prayer over you as you do that is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the love of God and that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, I'm going to be in the back. Uh, some of our elders will be back there also. If you want somebody to pray with this morning. If you want to talk about what trusting and what transformation of this truth looks like, I would invite you to come and find us in the back while we stand and while we sing.